Let's pray together. Father, here we are, your people. We have your word, and we have the Holy Spirit now to be our guide and our teacher. And we don't want to miss anything that you want to say today. So would you wipe away all sorts of things that would distract us from hearing from you? And would you let us zero in now on your word, the state of our souls, and the matter of obedience? God, we need to hear from you. It's um, what our souls need more than anything else. And so we pray that you would help us to know what it is that you're saying on this Lord's Day. This day is not by accident. It is by divine providence. So we, we're here and we open our hearts to whatever it is that you want to say to us today through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to take your Bibles and go to Exodus 35. I'm glad you're here today. And for those of you who are away watching online, we're glad that uh, you're able to join us also today. We're wrapping up this series in the book of Exodus. And uh, today we're going to talk about the connection between obedience and the presence of God. If you grew up in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, you may remember that um, in your childhood days there were lots of little songs that your Sunday school teachers may have taught you. Um, sometimes those songs were kind of annoying, you know, like uh, Father Abraham had many sons and it just went on and on and on. You're like, all right, I'm one of them. You know, it's just stop, stop the madness. Um, the, the point of those songs was to try and get something into your brain that you just never would forget, even if it was an annoying uh, song. If you didn't grow up in church, didn't ever go to Sunday school, you can imagine what these songs were like. They usually had a pretty catchy melody, a pretty uh, simple series of uh, lyrics. And, and the design was very simply just to get a particular truth into the mind and hearts of kids. One of those songs, uh, the first line of it goes like this. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And I, I thought this morning I'd sing this song for you. And then I thought, nah, I don't want to do that. And uh, so instead, I, uh, I, I get some help today from um, a couple of kids named um, BJ and Paris. So watch this. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. And joy you Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. So I found that on YouTube was corresponding with Paris and BJ's dad this week, actually via email, just to let them know we we're going to use that uh, video. And I think uh, I think Paris is a little more spunk than BJ. I don't know about you there. So the uh, the lines of that children's song are really important. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately, and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And he sees the golden calf in Exodus 32. 
after God gives the people a second chance in Exodus 34, after the covenant is validated um, by the glow on Moses' face, after God gives the people of Israel two commands regarding Sabbath observance and also regarding generosity, we now come to this section where they are to take the tabernacle instructions that they're given from Moses and they are to do exactly as the Lord commands. In effect, they are to demonstrate that they get it. They understand who they are. They understand who God is. And in the construction of this tabernacle, they're going to make a place for God to dwell. And they need to do it exactly as the Lord commands. Beginning in chapter 35, verse 30, all the way to chapter 39 and verse 43, that entire, uh, those, all those sections of uh, Scripture, some five chapters, we have the construction of the tabernacle. And what emerges from these chapters is a clear picture of the people's obedience. They've been given instructions regarding how the tabernacle was to be built in chapters 25 to 31. And now the question is, will they do it exactly the way that God wants them to do it? But the bigger question underneath the tabernacle construction is this. Will the people really obey God? Will they, will they, are they really on board with God's program? How would they know? How would God know? And obedience is how they and God knew that they got it. That they understood who God is and they understand who they are. So this morning we're going to see this connection between obedience and belief. And I hope that you understand that there is a very clear connection between what you believe and what you do. In fact, disobedience is actually unbelief. There are things that when we disobey, there are things that we believe about ourselves, things that we believe about God that are just not, they're fundamentally not true. And so there's a connection between obedience and belief. And so today I want to show you two things. First, show you the essentials of obedience in Exodus 35 to 39. Yeah, we're going to cover all those chapters. And then I want to make a connection to the New Testament in regards to why obedience is essential. So first, the essentials of obedience. And then secondly, so why is obedience essential? So here's the first one. What are the essentials of obedience? What I want to do is unpack um, Exodus 35 to 39 and show you some things that come out of this text. Now, when I began to outline the book of Exodus about a year, year and a half or so ago... I remember coming to this section in my work, and I was both intrigued and frustrated by this section of Scripture. I remember either getting up from my desk or walking around saying something like, what am I going to do with that? And the, and the reason is, is that everything in chapters 35 to 39, has, it's already been said. Chapters 25 to 31 are the instructions... So God tells Moses what they're to do, and then these chapters, chapters 35 to 39, is essentially, they just, they just do it. And so, there's really no new information here. I thought of entitling the message, they did it, and that's it. So go home. You know, it's be a short sermon. Maybe you'd like that, but too bad. So, <laughs> what we have here, though, is something that's really fascinating. That as you read through chapters 35 to 39, you'll see that what emerges is not just the construction of the tabernacle, but this focus on Israel's obedience and doing things exactly the Lord, the way that God had told them to do them. So this text is not just about the construction of the tabernacle. That's part of it. What it's really about is the connection between the people's construction of this tabernacle and their obedience. 
So let me show you some things about obedience in this passage. So what are the essentials of obedience? The first thing that we see is that their obedience is empowered. So again, this book is not about Moses or Israel or Egypt or Pharaoh. This book, the book of Exodus, is about God. And what we find here is that the people of Israel are not only the kind of folks who've been rescued from slavery, but even their obedience is empowered by God. He is the one who is not only going to rescue them, but he's the one who gives them the skill and the ability to obey. And that centers around two men. Their names are Bezalel and Aholiab. Look at the description of them beginning in verse 30 of chapter 35. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahishmach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer bezalel and a holy ab and every craftsman in whom the lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the lord has commanded so don't don't miss some things as we've read through this text don't miss the fact that first these men were uniquely called by god secondly that they were filled with the spirit And third, that there was a direct connection between their gifting and their actions and what God had done in them. That they had this intelligence and this ability, but the reality is that intelligence and that ability didn't come from themselves. That was something that God had put in them. So are they doing the work? Absolutely they're doing the work. But they, in doing that work, are giving evidence that it was God who actually empowered their work. We see this very clearly in verse 35. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work. So they were working, but underneath their work, underneath their activity, was God's empowerment. Their obedience would have never been possible unless God had first rescued them and secondly empowered them. So the fact of the matter is, is this obedience, which they were doing came not by their own volition or by their own actions, but instead was something that was empowered by God. Were they still responsible? Yes. Did they still do the work? Yes. But the point is they didn't do it alone. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament in this regards about divine empowerment is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Look at what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then notice what he says. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning that there's an empowerment in our obedience that God miraculously not only rescues us from our sin, but he changes the inclinations of our heart and even the things that we do have his divine empowering presence in them. So do you do the work, the good that you do? Do you do them? Absolutely. But do you do them on your own? Absolutely not. If left to yourself, you would never have a good thought. You would never do anything truly good. You would never have the ability to do it. So even when you do it after grace, it still is something that has been empowered by God. There's an empowerment that comes. We obey, and yet God also empowers our obedience. Secondly, 
Some of you, when you hear this, think, well, that makes us robots. No, it doesn't. Because we see very clearly that there's an enthusiasm connected with their activity. It's not just that they're empowered, but there's a level of enthusiasm behind it. Look at chapter 36 in in verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone, here it is, whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. So don't miss the fact that while God is doing the empowering, their enthusiasm along with God's empowerment go hand in hand. Their hearts were stirred to do the work. They were enthusiastic about the obedience that God was empowering. And this was extended to more than just the artisans. We learned that the people were motivated to give. In chapter 36 and verse 3, we see that the people kept bringing more and more offerings. And so Moses has to give an instruction that every spiritual leader longs to be able to say. (laughs) Longs to be able to say, okay, stop giving, we have enough. Oh, to be able to say... No, it's a... The, the, the obedience here was so enthusiastic that it was overwhelming. So it wasn't that they were forced. There was a willing heart. They were, they were empowered, but there was also an enthusiasm connected with this obedience. Third, and this is important, is that their obedience was tangible. There's a physicality connected to obedience. So, so much of what we talk about in terms of obedience um, relates to the heart. And, and don't get me wrong, the heart is really important in this matter of obedience. We talk a lot about heart condition and heart motivations around here. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that obedience is not just something that happens in the heart. Obedience must result in tangible actions. Obedience involves activity. It's not theoretical. So while it involves the heart, it is something that must be done. As, as uh, Paris and BJ reminded us, action is the key. Do it immediately. So it's not just the heart, that there is a real tangible, actionable thing that must be done. And in regards to Israel, the tangible action here was con- connected to the physical construction of the tabernacle. So I hope you know that the things that you do in life are connected to what you believe, or at least what you claim to believe. And you can't separate those two. Those two go hand in hand. Your heart, does it matter? Absolutely. But what we do, that's obedience. For instance, and by the way, what you, what you do says a lot. So I was driving into church this morning really early, and as I'm going around the roundabout there at um, 96 in Shelbourne, this blue pickup truck just <laughs> scared me. And then he cut me off and screaming down 96th Street. I thought, good grief. I'm driving down the road, and I watched. And I thought, if that brother turns into my church, I'm going to follow him in. Him, maybe her. I don't know what it was. So if you have a blue truck, no, he, he kept driving is what the point is. But the fact of the matter is, it's good that he kept driving, because the fact of the matter is, is how he was driving did not indicate to me that he should be turning into the church that we call home. You get what I'm saying? That's a small thing. But the fact of the matter is, you need to know that what you do and how you act and the things that you say and the places that you go and what you actually do, those are the things that are tangible in life. And listen to me, that stuff matters. It's not just you have a good, I have a good heart. I get it. But what you do really matters. 
What follows in the um, text is the listing of all of the elements of the tabernacle. This was, this was physical stuff. Israel had to follow the instructions. They had to do it exactly as the Lord commanded. And what follows here, and I'm going to cover chapter 36 all the way to 39, are all the elements that we talked about before. For instance, in chapter 36, uh, 8 to 15, we have the tabernacle, its, its structure and the coverings. And we got the poles up here again indicating the, the dimensions of what that tabernacle would have been. And there were beams and columns, and then they were covered with three layers of skins. Chapter 36, uh, chapters 36, verses 8 to 15, cover what that was to be like. Chapter 37, verses 1 to 9, uh, records the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And that was in the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest only went once a year. And it was there where God dwelt. And it was from this Mercy Seat that God met with His people. Chapter 37, verses 10 to 29, we have inside still the the tabernacle itself, the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. This indicates some kind of offering of food and light and smell. There was an incense. Remember we talked before about God sort of having his own cologne, so to speak. We're not allowed to use this incense in other settings. Outside of the... um, in the tabernacle itself, there was a courtyard. The courtyard was about the size of even this, this very room. And outside of that tabernacle, in that courtyard, was a altar of burnt offering where offerings were offered. And there was a bronze basin where the priests and other things were ceremonially cleansed. The exterior of the courtyard in chapter 38, verses 9 to 19 had its structures and curtains, and so there's instructions there and and, and detail about what Israel did in terms of the constructing of that. And that whole courtyard was designed to be a place where Israel would come and they would worship, and in that courtyard they would experience peace of God's presence in the midst of a very broken world. We talked about that, that going into the tabernacle courtyard meant that life was the way it was supposed to be in that courtyard. God was among his people, and it was a foretaste of what was to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And when I woke up this morning, I was like, God, I just can't wait to get to worship with College Park Church because this has been a really, really hard week with lots of tragedy. And I needed, I need this day to be able to come and be reminded about peace and Christ and the cornerstone so that my heart can be helped in the midst of very, very difficult seasons. So that's what, what the church is supposed to be. That's what the tabernacle was supposed to be. That in the midst of the brokenness of the world, there's this place that things are right. And then there were priestly garments in chapter 39, verses 1 to 31, where the priests wore the ephod and the breastpiece and the robe and the turban. And, and this represented purity and also their role as a mediator for the people. So each of these elements have spiritual significance. And when you put it together, they're all part of an overall picture of worship for God's people. And every element was very specifically prescribed by God. God had told Moses exactly how the tabernacle was to be constructed. And the people, they do it exactly as God had told Moses. So there was a physicality to their obedience that was extremely important. They they, they needed to have the right hearts, but... But action was the key. They needed to do it exactly as the Lord had commanded them. It's the same thing in the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, having a personal relationship with Christ not only means that you've been saved from your sins, that you've been rescued from judgment, but it means that there's a different conduct, a different actions, a different lifestyle, that the gospel works, that it, that it should be working out in your life. Does it mean you're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. We're all imperfect people. But the fact of the matter is we also should be an obedient people whose trajectory of our lives, while not perfect, is marked by more and more obedience, an increasing desire for my life, for your life, to be more and more conformed in the image and likeness of Christ, that the trajectory of our growth is we look more like Jesus today than we did a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 1, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So the idea is that you're building upon good acts and righteous deeds, and over time you're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. So I don't want you to make any mistake about it, friends, that true belief and obedience go hand in hand. If the people of Israel would not have obeyed, it would have been yet another example of half-hearted disobedience or half-hearted obedience. Their tangible obedience verified that their heart was in the right place. So they verified that their heart was right by their obedience. I'm sure you've heard people say things like this before I have. Well, he did what was wrong, but but his heart was in the right place. And I get what we're trying to say in that. What we're trying to say is we're trying to give someone the benefit of the doubt. We're trying to say, hey, everybody's a sinner and nobody's perfect. And I get all of that. But sometimes that phrase kind of frustrates me because the fact of the matter is your heart being in the right place doesn't give you license to do wrong things. Just because you have a right heart doesn't mean you can run your mouth and say horrible, wicked things about people. If your heart's in the right place, then stop talking. If your heart's in the right place, then look, you need to love your wife and love your husband and love your children and and follow in obedience. Your heart's in the right place. You shouldn't be looking at pornography. You you shouldn't be flirting around with people in, in, in the marketplace. You shouldn't be dallying in areas of sinfulness. If your heart is in the right place, then live like it, then act like it. If your heart is in the right place, then do the things that should be done that are right. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect, no. But sometimes we excuse our actions because our heart is right. And the fact of the matter is obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. If Israel hadn't obeyed, they wouldn't have been able to say, but our heart is right with you, God. No, their heart would show up in their obedience. So don't make the mistake of thinking that obedience is somehow an immaterial issue or that it doesn't matter. If you believe, then you will obey and it will show up tangibly. Fourth, we also find that the obedience is complete. The story of the tabernacle concludes with these elements being presented to Moses. And I don't know exactly what happened here, but it it seems to me that what is taking place as Moses is observing as all these elements are being brought in in front of him. It may have been some sort of parade or or something of that sort. In chapter 39, let's skip all the way to the end, verses uh, 32 to 43, 
Notice how often the phrase, all that the Lord had commanded Moses, or they did it, how many times those sort of things show up in this text. This is Exodus 39 and 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. See it? And then there's a long list. They, they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the covering of the tanned ramskips. So there's sort of this progression that's taking place throughout um, the, uh, the text of, of, of Exodus showing us all of the things that Israel had in fact done. Then, then skip ahead to around verse 40. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. That word behold is really important. It's, it's like they, they didn't always obey, but here they did, right? And according to all that the Lord had said, behold... It's like, we're surprised. And you get that, don't you? Because we're not perfect people. The Israelites aren't perfect people. Parents, you know what this is like when your kids have um, embraced partial obedience. You know, you've asked them to, to clean the room and you go up and it's not clean. You know how disheartening that is? And then there's those moments when as you're walking out the door, you say, hey, we're going to be back in, in about two hours. Please keep, clean the kitchen. And you come back and it's, behold, they have done it, right? That's what it is, right? Or you say, you're walking out the door to head to work. Hey, be sure you clean up that bedroom before you head off to school. And you come home and you're like, behold, right? And so that's the idea. Behold, they had done it. All that the Lord had spoken, they had done The beauty of this moment is the fact that they had done all that God had commanded them to do. See, it's one thing to say, I'll obey. That's great to say that you'll obey, but it's even better to actually obey. When I was a kid, I remember my dad being a bit disheartened with moments of partial obedience in my life. Things like he he and I had a very different definition of what it meant to wrap up the hose, right? His definition, it was all lined up and nice. Mine was more like a ball of yarn, you know, so it's, it's wrapped up, it's there. Same square footage, it's, it's good. And so I remember him asking me to do things like that and then showing up and seeing my work and not being quite as satisfied as what maybe he would have wanted to be or I, I would have wanted him to be. And so there's something really disheartening about partial obedience. And yet there's something really glorious about what happens here that that the people of Israel embrace total and complete obedience. So can I just ask you, are you and God on the same page when it comes to complete obedience? Or, or do you take your life and you compartmentalize it into little sections? you got your Jesus part over here, you got the self part over here, you got the sinful part over here, you just kind of have these compartments. A number of years ago, I remember watching the news and listening to a national leader talk about his reasons behind some of the moral scandals that he had been involved in. And they asked him, so how do you continue to do your work as a public servant when you've got all these other issues? He said, oh, that's frankly pretty easy. I've learned over the years how to compartmentalize my life. And I was like, there it is. That's the problem, is you compartmentalize your life. And I'm here to tell you, the gospel doesn't allow you to compartmentalize your life. Jesus doesn't allow you to compartmentalize your life. He's not Lord of a little piece of your life. He's Lord of all of your life. He blows down the little compartmentalized walls that we set up. And he wants us to embrace complete and total obedience. God intends for obedience to be total. God intends for obedience to be complete and thorough. 
The Apostle Paul described godly repentance this way. What earnestness, he says, this grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So true obedience is complete obedience. Fifth, we find that uh, Israel is blessed. And obedience is something that is blessed. When our kids were little, one of the things that we wanted to get into their hearts, and we said this over and over and over, was that obedience brings blessing. And I know it's elementary. It is elementary. And when you get into adult world, you realize that there's sometimes you obey and you aren't immediately blessed. So there isn't a direct connection every single time between obedience and blessing. But when they're kids, what I want my kids to understand is there is conse- are consequences for disobedience and obedience brings blessing. And what we see is that the obedience of Israel brought a blessing from Moses. They were, he was in effect blessing them on God's behalf. Now, we're not told in Exodus 39 what that blessing was, but in Numbers chapter 6, we see that the Aaronic blessing is given over the people of Israel, and it's in the context of the tabernacle construction. So this may have been the blessing that Moses or Aaron issued over them, and it goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When you understand the book of Exodus, that blessing takes on a whole new meaning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord... The one who's on the top of the mountain, who is, has, there's fire and there's lightning and there's smoke. And the people are saying, Moses, you talk to us, but don't let God speak to us. This God is going to bless you and keep you. The God, Moses says, this God will make his face to shine upon you. Moses' face is still aglow with the presence of God. And God is going to say, he'll make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord will lift up his countenance upon you. And he will give you the one thing that you can't get on your own. The thing that you go into the tabernacle for. He will give you peace. This is what obedience brings. It brings the blessing of God. Moses was reflecting the pleasure of God in the blessing of his people. This must have been an amazing moment for him. Moses had delivered to the people very specific instructions from the Lord regarding the construction of the tabernacle, and now he was able to see with his own eyes their fulfillment of those very instructions. What a different day this was from the day he came down the mountain. You know, there is, there is just something profoundly joyful about knowing that the people whom you love are doing what is right. Can I just tell you, as a, as a pastor, there, there, makes, there is no greater joy than hearing when you do what's right. No greater joy than just last service, meet a person who's new at the church, and when I find out that she's new and She's here because somebody bought a piece of furniture from her or found out she was new in the area and invited her to come to church. And I just want to go, yes, way to go. No greater joy. And you know, there's also no greater grief than when sins and immorality and dishonesties and greed plague us. When we hear of moral blowouts and conflicts. As a parent, I mean, what do you want for your kids? You want them to do what's right. 
There's no mom or dad in the world who's proud that their son or daughter's a fool. Nobody who says, yeah, they're a fool. And they're proud of it. Nobody does that. The Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. So what are the what are the tangible expressions of obedience? What are the specific expressions of obedience? Obedience is empowered. God's the one who's empowering it. It's enthusiastic. It means we're on board. It means it's tangible. It means there's, we actually are doing something. It means that it is complete, and it means that it is blessed. So for Israel and for you and for me, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And that, for some of you in this room, creates a problem. Here's why. Because the fact of the matter is, if you look at your life, there isn't a track record of obedience in the slightest. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about that. But I'm talking about your life looks, if you look at the whole picture, it looks like you're really trying to run your own life, and yet you claim to be a Christian. And the fact of the matter is, your disobedience and your claim to, be, to, to believe, they don't go together. And the fact of the matter is you could know the facts about the gospel. You could know that Jesus died for your sins. You could know that he rose again from the grave. You could even know that the creed that we quoted was the Apostles' Creed. And the fact of the matter is it's not working in terms of how you live every day. And the reason why it's not working is because you've never been genuinely converted. You know the facts about the gospel. You know the reality of the gospel. But you haven't internalized the gospel. And you can tell me all day long, well, I have a good heart. My heart's in the right place. I would say to you, if your heart's in the right place, then it better show up in how you live. And if it's not working, then you don't have it. Again, I'm not saying you're being perfect. But what I am saying is the Bible says over and over that this gospel is so life-transforming, so powerful, so significant, so unbelievably regenerating, making you a new person, that the effect of your life is not that you're going to be perfect, but you are going to be different. And if you're not, then I would just invite you today that make today the day of your conversion for you to say, you know what, I need to make this thing right between me and my God that I get it because it's not showing up. Israel could not have said to God if they were disobedient, well, our heart's in the right place. God knew that when their heart was really right, then their actions would also be really right. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. So those are the essentials of obedience. From Exodus 35-39. Let me, let me draw this to a close and help you understand a couple of things as to why obedience is essential. So those are the essentials of obedience. So then the question is, all right, so, so why is obedience so essential? We've talked a lot throughout the book of Exodus about God's graciousness, about his kindness, and he certainly is that. I mean, delivered the people of Israel from slavery. But there's another side to this graciousness of God, and there's another side to the grace that we receive, and that is the aspect of obedience. So the question is, why does obedience to God really matter? And that is not a theoretical question. That matters when you face temptations. That matters when the enemy offers you pleasures and, and, and things that could take you another direction. Why does obedience to God in that moment matter? Why does it matter? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, obedience matters because it honors God as God. The Ten Commandments begin with this preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So the preamble establishes the reason why God can say you shall have no other gods. In other words, there's a connection between obedience and who God is. So obedience honors God as God. 
God has the right to prescribe behavior. He has the right to require obedience because he's God. And therefore, when we submit to his commands and when we choose to obey and follow his path, we in effect say, God, I get it. You're God and I'm not. And the reverse is also true when it comes to disobedience. When it comes to disobedience, we decide to go our own way. It's a momentary uh, lapse in judgment, a momentary issue of insubordination and treason where we say, God, I'm God. I'm going to follow my own rules. I'm going to be the center of my own universe. It is a statement about what we think about God. So the next time temptation comes across your path, you need to fight it with this sort of thought. So is God God or not? Is God God or not? If he is, then let's do what we're supposed to do. If not, then let's go our own way. Romans chapter 1, Paul says that we suppress the truth that should be known about God in creation. We suppress it in unrighteousness. In other words, that you could look around in creation and it's clear and evident that God exists. The fact that you feel guilt for what you do, that guilt came from some place, that there's a, a standard of morality, even if you don't believe in the Bible, there's a standard of morality outside of yourself. Where did that come from? The Bible says that came from God. And what happens is that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which means this, that you keep doing wrong things and wrong things and wrong things, and you think, well, I did this and got away with it, I did it and got away with it, I did it and got away with it, nothing really happened to me. And you begin to think that God isn't real because you keep doing more and more more wrong things you suppress the truth of unrighteousness and oh will you be surprised the day you stand before your creator and realize that it was all true it was all right and you're in big trouble because of the fact of the matter you tried to live your own way the enemy wants you going down this path the fact of the matter is that obedience honors god as god obedience acknowledges i'm not the center of the universe number two obedience also validates the gospel The gospel is the simple message that we're saved not by our own works. We're saved by faith. And the beauty of grace is that God has treated us kindly in Christ despite our disobedience. So there is a gracious side to the gospel. It it is full of grace. But there also is an element flowing out of the gospel that results in a changed life. Or, as St. Augustine said, grace alone saves, but the kind of faith that saves is not alone. The idea is that you come to faith in Christ only by grace, but the question of whether or not you really have that grace is the effect of what it does in and through your life. So if you're a new creature and the old is gone and the new has come, that's going to show up in how we live our lives. So, Obedience validates the gospel. It shows us that true faith has come. One of my favorite texts in this in the book of Ephesians is in chapter 2 and verse 8 where it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there it is. It's all grace. It's all God. So you can't boast about anything when it comes to your conversion. But then notice what comes next. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the actions, the attitudes, the things that we do, they validate that the gospel indeed is real. Church, the world needs to know that the gospel works. And how do they know the gospel works? They know it works by how we live. We need obedient, righteous, holy Christians 
who are not trapped in legalism trying to earn God's favor, but instead, out of the overflow of the beauty of His grace, say, God's law doesn't make me mad, it makes me glad, and I want to obey Him because I want to and love Him because of what He has done for me in Christ. Third, obedience gives assurance. If you grew up in church, you may have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. That's a true statement. I agree with that statement. It's often used to refer to the assurance of one's salvation. And what that means, if you've never heard that phrase before, it means that when you receive Christ, then that's a permanent deal. It can't be undone. It can't fall out of God's grace any more than my children, when they were born to me, could not no longer become my children. They will always be my children. Always. So once saved, always saved is true. But here's the problem. For many people, what that means is that they um, remember the date where they received Christ. So like in my church tradition, it was kind of important to know the exact date that you received Christ. So you had to write down that date. And so anytime when anyone would doubt their salvation, you would point them back to that date. No, no, no. You remember that date. You received Christ. You, you were really born again on that date. And that's, that's one way to provide assurance. It's not necessarily wrong. But there's another way. Also, that that Peter tells us that our ongoing assurance comes from obedience. That there's something about our obedience that helps us to feel, no, I'm real. I am the real deal. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities, those are the qualities we read earlier about adding all these things, virtue, faith, long-suffering, all that. So whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you you will never fall. So the idea is that God has a sovereign plan for your life. You hearing the gospel was a part of his plan for, for, for your life. And the way that you confirm that that is a real thing and really happened in you is by embracing obedience that's supposed to go along with the walk of faith. So you confirm your calling and your election. You confirm who you are by your obedience. So listen to me. One of the best ways for you to have assurance of your salvation is to obey, 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 obey. And the reverse is also true, that if you fall into a pattern of disobedience and suddenly you're like, you know what, I'm doing all these things, I don't know if I'm real, I don't know what's going on, if I really believe this, don't you dare just assure yourself by some little date in the front of your Bible. If you're not walking in obedience and you have an assurance alarm that's going off, that is God's design to awaken you and call you back to righteous living or to even help you to realize that maybe you weren't genuinely converted in the first place. Because there is a connection between obedience, not perfection, There's a connection between obedience and true belief. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. We give evidence by our lives that we are the real deal, that we've really got it, that it really makes sense. In the same way that Israel, by following the Lord's instructions, verified that they got it, who they were and He was, so we also verify that we get it by our obedience. So listen to me. If you're out in left field when it comes to obedience right now, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, listen, you got, you, got, you got two choices. You either keep going down the path that you're going, and you'll meet your Creator one day, and I wouldn't have a whole lot of assurance if I were you heading down this path that you're the real deal. Or you can turn, repent today, and say, this message, this Sunday, this word is for me. I'm getting back on the other path. And in so doing, verify that, in fact, you are the real deal. 
So don't hang out in left field anymore morally. Don't hang out in left field in disobedience. And don't squelch that assurance issue that's wrestling going on inside of your soul. That is God's early warning sign. There's a problem and it needs to be corrected by repentance and faith. Finally, why is obedience essential? Because it's the best way to live. I'm going to end in a winsome note. The final reason why obedience is essential because of this reason. God's ways work. Do you believe that? Well, I hope you do because you're going to need that when temptations come across your path and the culture begins to shift even more and more, kind of anti-God and anti-Scripture. You're going to have to believe. No, God's ways work, even though there may be just a few of us who believe that anymore. God's ways work. He's designed marriage. He knows how it works. He's designed family. He knows how, how, how it's supposed to work. He's designed sexuality. He knows how it's supposed to work. He knows how, he's the one that's given money. He knows how it's supposed to be used. That God's ways work. If God is the creator of the world, if he has told us how to live, then living according to his commands are simply the best way to live. The best way to live. Paul said this to Timothy about those who have financial resources, but it applies to everything in life. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future. But then he says this, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen to me, the enemy hates you and wants to convince you that you're missing out and there's a better life if you just go down this path, step outside of God's commands. That's what real life is. And in the midst of that sort of message in the world, the Bible says, what are you, crazy? God knows how you ought to live, so follow in his obedience because you will then grab a hold of that which is truly life. So you're a teenager, a college student, single adult, got your life in front of you. I'm telling you, you had just better get a hold of this truth. There is no better way to live than in accordance with God's heart and his laws and his commands because his ways work. The ways of the enemy, they do not work. They don't. Obedience is the best way to show that you believe. So Israel was making a sanctuary for God's presence to dwell in. That's what we'll look at next week. In the New Testament, God doesn't inhabit a sanctuary. You know what he does? He inhabits people. And in so doing, he makes them holy, and he empowers them for more and more holiness. He put his spirit in you so that you would want to follow Christ. You won't do it perfectly, but there's this fundamental drive within you. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus so much that no matter what happens to me in life, no matter what difficulties come my way or what hardships come or what temptations come to my in front of my face, at the end of the day, I want to be like Jesus. And in that want, you know that couldn't be you, that it has to be God. And in that beautiful want, it confirms that God has been the author of your salvation. And if he's been the author, he'll be the finisher of it as you obey and follow him all the way to the end. So what do you do? So what do you do in the interim? Here's what you do. You continually say, Lord, would you help me to be a sanctuary? Would you help me to be a sanctuary? Would you help me to be pure and holy? Would you help me to be tried and true? And with thanksgiving, with gratitude to you, I will be a living sanctuary. Oh, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that that prayer would be true for every person in this room, but i got to believe it's not. And so I pray that today you'd bring people from darkness to light, 
Bring them from a pathway of disobedience to a moment of genuine conversion. Father, bring believers who who really get it, who've fallen on the wayward path. Let today be a day where they say, no more, no more. And they'll turn today, knowing that this day was from you for them to rescue them from their wayward condition. Lord, we want to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Thank you that in Christ that's even possible. Help us to walk today in righteousness and obedience. Help us to remember that obedience is the very best way to show that we believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here who'd love to pray for you about anything going on in your life today. They're here. Don't leave until you've dealt with whatever it is you need to deal with today, okay? Love you, College Park. God bless you.